So we're coming to the end of our series on Ephesians. I hope you found it useful and helpful. Um, I think that there's one more sermon next week. Steve will be doing that, finishing the, um, the book for us. Having spent the last few chapters uh, expounding what it means to live as a Christian in a community of God's redeemed people, the new community, comprised of Jews and Gentiles and all believers, Paul now finishes his letter with an address, instruction and teaching about spiritual warfare. Last week we learned about slaves and masters. The previous week it was parents and children. Now Paul addresses a slightly different subject, but connected. Let me just say at the beginning, there are thousands of books written about these passages. You could fill libraries and libraries. Whole forests have been cut down to produce books about the armour of God. Thousands of hours of sermons have been preached. I've sat through thousands of hours myself over the years on this. Maybe not quite thousands. This is a famous passage. And it's, you know, go on the internet, you'll find sermons and you'll find resources and Bible studies and books about this. So, a bit of a disclaimer at the beginning, I'm bound to miss out certain aspects of this. I can't possibly cover, in this short time we have together, every single thing that could be said about the armour of God or spiritual battle. What I aim to do tonight is to give you a few thoughts and meditations to take away, rather than trying to cover every single base. If you want more information, do read Martin Lloyd-Jones' books, which I found very helpful about the armour of God and the book of Ephesians. But you know what, friends? Familiarity can breed contempt, can't it? We've heard this so many times, it's very easy to switch off and to say, well, you know, we've heard this, and what more can be said about it than has been said already? It's easy to become blasé, isn't it, and naive and casual about these things. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe you're sitting here tonight and think, well, I could switch off for half an hour or so, I'm just going to hear the same old stuff I've always heard. Well, I don't promise anything new. But we do need to be aware, don't we? This is a serious matter, spiritual battle, spiritual conflict. And we need to to get a grip of it. And we need to remind ourselves of this. And hopefully, as a Christian, you've realized that you are in a spiritual battle. You are part of a titanic, cosmic battle between good and evil. The army of the Lord and the army of Satan. And I want to say this at the beginning as well. Don't think that you are too small or insignificant to be included in this battle. Paul is addressing here not a special class of super-Christians. He's not addressing evangelists and people that go out and preach the gospel primarily. He's talking to the ordinary Christians, as it were, of the church in Ephesus. Rich and poor, educated, uneducated, all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of Christian experiences. He's talking to all of them and he assumes that each one of them will be part of this spiritual battle, that will engage in this spiritual battle. He doesn't say, go and enter the spiritual battle, go and make a choice to go and enter it. You, as a Christian, are part of this spiritual battle. And if you've never known any kind of battle as a Christian, I suggest to you, you might want to consider whether you really are a Christian at all. The spiritual battle looks different for different Christians and it manifests itself in different ways at different times, but it is a reality that we all face. Don't think, oh, 
my life is so mundane and ordinary that I'm not part of this. Little old me with my ordinary life. The devil would never ever touch me or have anything to do with me. That's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Each one of us is engaged in that. We do not live in peacetime. We live in wartime. One of the biggest lies of the enemy against the church in the West is that he's convinced us that we're living in peacetime. And we can just loaf around and take it easy and let go and let God and everything will be okay. But actually we're in a war and it's a brutal war. And there are casualties left, right and centre. And if you want to know, I can tell you about some of them. First of all, who are we struggling against? Well, I've given it away already and you know this. The struggle is the devil or Satan. The struggle is against the devil or Satan. Look in verse 11 of Ephesians 6. Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So we know the enemy is the devil. We know that he's got schemes. The word here is actually from the Greek word which is connected with the word method. I can't remember the actual Greek word, but it's, it's where we get the word method from. The devil has methods and wiles and schemes. And these are always designed to cause the believer to trip up and stumble and disobey God. I don't know if you've ever been to a pantomime. Uh, last year we went to a pantomime. Anya and the kids dragged me along. And, um, yeah, um, in the pantomime, you've always got a villain. The villain, it comes on, there's all this kind of dry ice and, you know, kind of loud music and thunder claps, and then the villain comes on, and they're always cackling and scheming and rubbing their hands and plotting the downfall of Snow White or whoever it might be in the pantomime. But you and I know that when we watch a pantomime, the villain will always come good at the end. They always come to the wedding of Snow White and the Handsome Prince, whatever it is. You know it's just an actor playing a part. And, you know, the kids love to hate the villain. They're booing and hissing and all this kind of stuff. But actually, there's no real venom, is there, against the villain. It's just part of the show, part of the atmosphere, part of the story. But it's a big mistake, isn't it, to think of the devil like that? I think, if we're honest, when we we think of the devil, some idea pops into our head of a little man with red horns and a kind of forked tail and a pitchfork. You know, people have this kind of image of the devil as being a kind of fun-loving rebel against God. Some people do. Sort of mischievous soul who kind of tempts you to do all the things that you really want to do, but no, you shouldn't. People portray the devil sometimes as someone who actually wants to do you a favor. He wants to release you from this kind of boring life that you lead, to do all the things that you've always dreamed of doing, which usually involves sin and disobedience and fulfilling the desires of the flesh. The devil is not some kind of pantomime villain. He's not some kind of mischievous but lovable rogue who just tries to, you know, inject a bit of excitement into everyday life. And if you've been engaged in a spiritual battle, as I have many times in my Christian life, I'm still in a battle, but in in intense periods of conflict, you'll know that the devil is no laughing matter. And his schemes do not always, um, are not always like the pantomime villain schemes. They scheme and scheme, but in the end it always comes good because the devil can cause real damage and carnage to Christians and to the church if we allow him to. So I want to just remind us at the beginning tonight that this is serious matter that we need to get to grips with. Churches fall into two extremes when talking about the devil. They either focus too much on him 
and have a kind of morbid fascination with him, or they completely ignore him altogether and pretend he's powerless and almost non-existent. And I propose to you that we should not go to any of those extremes, either of those extremes. We should steer a middle course. Be aware of the devil and his, his legions, but at the same time, don't become fascinated by him. Don't focus too much on him and don't fear him. Be vigilant, be alert, but do not fear him. Look to Christ. Focus on him rather than the devil. Now, verse 12 tells us this. The devil is not alone in his schemes. He has agents and servants in the world. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What this is telling us, and this is not the only place that mentions these, is there's a whole kind of hierarchy of spiritual beings of which we are not aware. We're, we're aware of them as, in as much as we know what the word of God says about them, but we cannot see them. We cannot perceive them with the senses. They're supernatural. In the heavenly realms, it doesn't mean in heaven, that means in the spiritual realm, these forces are active. And there's a whole range of them, different levels, that's how I understand it anyway, with different, different powers and different you know, realms to work in. But this is not the first time we've come across these in Ephesians, have we? These spiritual powers in the spiritual beings, the spiritual realm. Colossians 1 verse 16, I'm not going to read it now, says that Christ has disarmed them at the cross. He triumphed over them, these spiritual beings. Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 16, actually, Colossians 1 verse 16 is the one at the beginning. That talks about Christ making these things. Christ was there at creation. By him, all things were created, including these spiritual beings. In Ephesians 1 verse 20, we learn this, that Christ was exalted. When he, when he rose from the dead, when he went back to heaven, he ascended, he was exalted over all these spiritual beings, these powers and authorities. And I want to give you comfort in this, that although these, these forces do have power in this world we live in today, Christ did not only make them, he did not only disarm them in some way at the cross, but he also reigns over them. He's far exalted over them. And we should not fall into this trap of thinking that the devil and the Lord are two equal sides in a battle, like two sides on a chessboard. They're both equal. The Lord Jesus is far supreme over all powers of evil, over the devil. And he secured the victory over them on the cross. In some ways, he disarmed them. They still have authority to act and considerable power, but their days are numbered. It says at the end of Revelation, in verse 20, Revelation 20, we read about Satan's doom. Satan and his, his angels actually not the angels in that passage, are cast into the lake of burning sulfur. But elsewhere it says, the fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So the devil will be dealt with when the Lord Jesus comes again. He will decisively be finished off. But for now, we Christians, we face the struggle of living in this world, which is still, to a large extent, controlled by the devil. We know that above that, the sovereignty of God is fully in control, and he restrains the work of the devil. But at the same time, there's still an active battle going on. And that will continue until the Lord calls us to glory, till we die, or till the Lord Jesus comes again. And puts the, puts, puts the devil to his final end, which he deserves, the lake of fire. 
Now, we talked about the devil's schemes. What are these, these schemes of the devil? There's such a multitude of these schemes. I, I'm not going to list every single one tonight. I'm going to give you some examples of the way the devil can operate and scheme against people. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, Paul says we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. And we Christians ought not to be unaware of his schemes either. The spiritual realm is invisible. But we can see the effects of the devil. We can see the effects of his schemes. I think the devil is a mystery. We don't know him. We can't see him. But we can see the effects. Many years ago, I went to visit... I, know this, I always mention this. People laugh, but it's not really funny. I went to visit the site of, a, of the world's worst nuclear accident um, on an excursion, like you do. And um, When this accident happened in 1986, a huge amount of radiation was released into the atmosphere and spread across the surrounding countryside. Now, radiation is invisible. You can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, but you can see its devastating effects on the human organism. And had you been there in 1986, you would have seen people suffering those effects, vomiting, whatever it might be, hair falling out, Nobody, if you'd gone there, you would, if you hadn't got the equipment to know what was going on, you'd say, what's going on with these people? Why, why are they suffering like this? There must be something invisible, but very potent and lethal, which is working. And the spiritual realm is like that. We cannot see it, but we can see the effects of it. Now, in order to, in order to understand the devil's schemes, we, we need to look at what the Bible says about him. We can't talk about everything tonight, but the Bible has many names for the enemy, the, the devil, the evil one. Jesus called him the murderer and the father of lies. In other places, he's called the tempter or the accuser. And through these names and titles, we can get an idea of what the devil's activity is against Christians. He's described as being like a roaring lion. And other times, he masquerades as an angel of light. The devil is a master of disguise and is very cunning and has his schemes and comes in different ways, in different guises. And the devil's schemes against you, Christian, will be different for different people. The schemes he uses against you will be based on your particular weaknesses and experiences and circumstances. Don't think because you're suffering in a certain way that everybody else will suffer in the same way. The devil has a whole kind of panoply, range of different things he can use against different people. So it's not uniform. Some some people he employs lies, some people he employs accusations, some people he employs temptations. Some things are common to all Christians. Some are more specific. And I believe, in a way, the devil has a tailor-made plan for each one of us. He does know us to some extent. He knows what our weaknesses are. In verse 16, it talks about the flaming arrows of the evil one. Fiery darts, missiles being projected against us by the devil. What are some of these schemes? Well, I'll just list a few of them for you today, which may be common to you. Temptation, the devil loves to tempt. He's called the tempter. We look at the Lord Jesus in the desert, don't we, in the wilderness. And the devil came to him when he was so very weak, having fasted for 40 days. The devil came and he employed the the tactic of trying to deceive and tempt the Lord Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world and saying, I'll give all this to you if you bow down and worship me. And the devil, that's that's a common scheme of the devil, isn't it? He, he, He... offers you the world if only you'll compromise in some way and do something which you know you shouldn't do, which will be disobedient to God. He offers you a shortcut. Don't go through all that suffering and hardship. Just do this and you'll get all that anyway. We know how the Lord Jesus resisted him. 
Now, it's true that evil and temptation does come from within the human heart as well. James tells us that. He says this, we by our own evil desires are dragged away and enticed. So sometimes people blame the devil too much. The devil made me do it. The devil never makes people do things. The devil entices you, the devil tempts you, but you yourself choose to give in to that. So temptation comes from the human heart, the wicked, sinful human heart, but it also comes externally from the devil. I don't know how that works. I don't understand it. I don't know what power the devil has. But I do know that there's there's a sense in Scripture the devil comes to us and can tempt us in some way by showing us a wide range of things which would not be good for us, which would be sinful. Another tactic the devil uses very commonly is doubt or fear. I wonder if you've experienced this, times of acute doubt, where you doubt the promises of God, and you doubt his goodness, you doubt his word. It might be an intellectual doubt. It might be an emotional doubt. Or fear, where you just are crippled by a sense of unworthiness, or fear that perhaps you've completely misunderstood this whole thing. Or fear that somehow God will look at you and turn his face away from you when he sees your sin. And once again, I don't know how the devil does this, but I do know that he has in some ways the power to cause this, to, to afflict Christians with this, fears and doubts and confusion. Another tactic he uses is accusations. He's called the accuser. The devil loves to accuse us before the Lord. And he loves to put accusations in our hearts as well. You know, he accuses you, he says, you know, do you really call yourself a Christian? How can you call yourself a Christian? How do you dare to call yourself a Christian? What makes you think that you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven? What makes you think the law will own you on the judgment day and say, this is one of my people? You're vile, you're disgusting, you're sinful, you're wretched. The devil knows all these things and he uses them in season to try to cause you to just be broken utterly crippled and disabled by his lies. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention lies and deceptions. The devil is called the father of lies by Jesus. The devil is an expert in lies. Jesus said it's his native language, lies. He lies so easily he doesn't even notice. The the devil loves to deceive Christians and others and bombard them with falsehood. And he loves to see Christians believing this falsehood. Right back in the garden, when Satan first appears in the guise of a snake, what does he say to Eve? Has God really said? Casting doubt about what God had said. Twisting it slightly. Causing the lie. We need to be very careful about giving in to these lies. What about another tactic? This one's a bit more subtle. And it's alarming because it can actually come into the church. Worldly reasoning. Think of Peter. That famous occasion when Peter confessed... Jesus as Christ. And then straight away after that, when Jesus started talking about the cross, what did Peter do? No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus rather harshly, but rightly, rebukes him. says, away from me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And even, the devil can even use Christian people, well-meaning people, to speak things which are not true, which may, may sound very plausible, which may have an element of wisdom, but actually are not part of God's will. We need to be very careful, don't we? Another scheme of the devil is persecutions and trials. I think in the West we've been spared the worst excesses of these. But of course they're an absolute reality for Christians all over the world and may one day be in this land again. And I think the pressure is gradually tightening on Christians in this land. But can you imagine what it must be like to be a Christian bombarded by persecution, by opposition, by people that hate you for no other reason 
than that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a terrible thing that must be. And yet we know the Lord sustains his church under persecution and strengthens his people and blesses them and the church prospers and grows. And yet the devil would love to afflict the church with persecution, stir up people with this hatred, hatred of Christians, hatred of Christ, hatred of the gospel. And the goal of the devil is to to make the Christian give up and say the cost is too much. I I can't hack this. I don't want this. I want to go back to my easy life before. Where join that big tide of people going in the direction that they were going in before. The devil would love to see that. What about another tactic of the devil? Divisions and conflict. I think if you're a married couple, you probably... I mean, it's actually my 11th wedding anniversary today. And you reminded me this morning. <laughs> it's true. But you know, marriage, marriage... Families, churches, relationships, friendships. The devil loves to cause division and conflict between believing people and non-believing people, but particularly in the church. Wouldn't the devil love nothing better than to divide this church, divide marriages, cause us to not talk to each other, cause us to be jealous of each other or bitter, or to be sceptical of each other and suspicious and cynical? We're told in Ephesians 4 verse 12, do not give the devil a foothold. I wonder how often we do that, inadvertently, deliberately. We give him a foothold. We allow him. A little bit of sand gets into the oyster and it works and works and works. Now this one's a bit more, a bit more um, controversial. I'm not really an expert on this, but I do think, in a way, illnesses and afflictions can also be part of the devil's arsenal. Now we need to, we need to be balanced about this. I'm not suggesting every time you get a cold that the devil's on your case. I've met Christians like that before. Every kind of little affliction, I've got a bruise on my knee, it must be from the devil. But there is a biblical case. There is a biblical case for saying that that afflictions can be, under God's sovereign will, devices the devil uses against the Christian. Diseases of the body or afflictions of the mind. We know in our church these things are not absent. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, talks about his fawn in the flesh, doesn't he? A messenger of Satan sent to torment me. What does that mean? Nobody knows for sure. We can't be sure. You can ask Paul when we get to glory what he meant. But he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. The Lord said, what did he say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in all weakness. Paul, it may well have been an illness that Paul was facing. It could have been a demonic attack. But it could have been an illness. A lot of people think Paul had problems with his eyes. He's partially sighted. Paul attributed this to the devil, the devil's activity. What about that poor woman who'd been bleeding? I think it was 18 years. Jesus said this woman has been get bound by Satan for 18 years. What about Job? We've been studying Job on this, uh, this course, Steve and Brenda and I. Job, under the sovereignty of God, was allowed to suffer more, probably more than any man has ever suffered apart from the Lord Jesus. His world was taken away. The rug was pulled away under him. He lost everything that was dear to him. The only thing he didn't lose was his life. Covered in sores, sitting in the ash heap, scraping his skin, his sores of a piece of broken pottery, having lost all his family, his wealth, having it all swept away like a tidal wave. But God allowed that to happen. God was in control. God had a plan and a purpose. But you know what? The devil can use his afflictions. Job makes it very clear that the devil was using this. And the purpose of the devil is to make you curse God and disobey God and Shake your fist at God and say, God, you've done this to me. You're, you know, you're guilty to hate God. 
Once again, I'm not suggesting that every illness is always spiritual attack, but I do think sometimes illnesses come, and we, we have a particular sense that this is just not by chance. There's something in this which is more than just a medical problem from time to time. Perhaps we need to pray a bit more for wisdom about these things. Turn back to Ephesians 6. So these are just some of the schemes the devil uses. And you can think of many, many more different flavors and varieties the devil uses against God's people. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, Our struggle was not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to look at these, these phenomena that I've just mentioned to you, illnesses and persecutions and problems and deceptions, and, and attribute them to human reasons, and blame people and say, these things are just part of life, these things just happen in the world we live in. Think about the parable of the weeds, or the tares, as we used to call it. The parable when the man comes in the night, the enemy, and scatters seed, weeds, in the field. And the servants wake up and tell the master, Master, look, at where do these weeds come from? And he said, what did he say? Who could tell me? An enemy has done this. We see the effects. We see the weeds. We don't see the enemy. He comes by night. He's invisible, the devil. But we do see the effects of his works. We see the tears. We see the weeds. We don't say, oh, look, some weeds have grown up. Where do they come from? We know, like that master, we know where these things have come from. We don't always know. We don't have perfect knowledge. We have a suspicion these things are not just natural occurrences. In our church circles, we tend to be very rational, don't we? We like things to be very rational and logical. And that's right. I'm not saying we shouldn't be like that. But we need to be careful. There, there are things we don't understand. There are things which are, which are supernatural and spiritual. And it's important that we look at situations inside the church and outside the church with spiritual discernment and spiritual eyes. Look at what's going on in the world today. Look at the problems the world faces. Look at the giants of the land that we have around us. Atheism, rampant humanism, false religions, Islam. We heard today from Ellen. Islam is a major force. What about totalitarian regimes, wicked governments? What about persecutors of the church? What about those who peddle immorality and lies? What about those, those who believe in the occult, the occult, you know, all these kind of dark magical powers and forces? We need to be be careful. These things are not just human efforts. Behind them are very dark spiritual forces, which we don't see, but we're aware of. Behind all these things, there's a spiritual force working, these demons, these powers, these spiritual forces in in the dark realms. Human beings are agents. Human beings are used by the devil for his works and purposes, but they are not the real enemy. We need to be very careful of this. We don't start blaming people and accusing people and making out that people are the real enemy of the church. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings. Yes, there are times to oppose wickedness. There are times we have to stand up, not physically perhaps, but we have to stand up and oppose those who do evil. But primarily, the the enemy we face are these spiritual forces of the devil, not people. Muslims are not the enemy. They're poor, lost people who've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Behind Islam is a spiritual force. Deception. 
Same, I believe, behind the Roman Catholic Church. That's one of the biggest con jobs in all of history. Complete twisting of religion, of the Christian faith. Deceiving people. Behind that, there's a spiritual force, I believe. Look at the problems the world faces. Look at it. It might be gun crime in London or selling drugs on the level. Behind these things, there are spiritual forces at work. I don't understand them. None of us can see them, but we know these things are manifestations. These are weeds that have grown up because an enemy has sown these things. We can do, do things to address these things. I thank, thank the Lord there are people trying to address the problem of drugs on the level, but the problem goes far deeper, doesn't it? The problem is not just people. Yes, the problem does come from people's hearts, but it's more than that. It's the devil working up these things to cause problems. And also in the church, friends, when we see in the church things which are, which are opposite to the things that God wants, false teaching, division, legalism, worldliness, people may be agents of this. People may bring this into the church, but behind that, there are spiritual forces at work. We do not oppose these people. We do not hate these people. We do not fight against these people. We don't have Christian jihad. We don't take up arms. I met Christians before. I met a man once who said we should take up arms physically and fight against our enemies as Christians. Where he got that from, I don't know. He kind of read this passage. This is a spiritual battle of spiritual weapons. We fight against those spiritual forces. We oppose them, not against people. But we do need discernment and vigilance, don't we? To look at the situations, not purely in a rational way. And say, oh, that's just flesh and blood. That's just like, you know, human problem with human solutions. When you say, no, I believe something deep is going on here, something spiritual which needs to be opposed spiritually using the weapons that God has given us. Now, let's look at the evil day. Verse 13, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. What is this day of evil that Paul speaks of? Some people say it's the last days, the days we live in. I think the Bible does suggest that in the last days before Christ's return, things will get very, very bleak and difficult for Christians. I'm not an expert, but I think you can, you can make the case for that. In chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. Paul is talking about a general climate of wickedness which will be evident in the last days which is the period we live in the period from the return of Christ the, the sorry what was it the ascension of Christ sorry the resurrection and ascension of Christ to his return that period is the last days we're living in however long that may be and these days are evil the days are there where wickedness is rampant in the world but I believe this day of evil that Paul talks of here is something different This is talking about a day of intense, concentrated, spiritual attack on a believer. The devil is always active in the lives of believers. But sometimes his activity is more more sustained than others. I think the devil's activity ebbs and flows. So you have times when it's very intense and times when it's less intense. If it was intense all the time, I think we would struggle to cope with it. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. It says the devil left him until an opportune time. The devil hadn't completely left Jesus, but he went away from that sustained period of attack. When I was a young Christian, when I was living in Ukraine, I was about 22, I went through the most intense battle, spiritual battle, that I've never been through since. Somehow I'd picked up from 
well-meaning but misguided Christians, this idea that a Christian could lose their salvation. That one day I would stand, one day I would stand before God and that God would look at me and say, you haven't come up to scratch and you're going to hell and you're not good enough. The judgment would be there and I'd be part of that judgment. I'd be condemned because I hadn't lived proper Christian life as I saw it. And you know, I can't describe it to you as the most intense period over months and months where I didn't even want to get up in the morning. It was almost like a palpable sense of the devil. And I'm not given to superstition or given to kind of feelings, but it felt so real. I I was almost crippled by it. Didn't want to do anything. Didn't want to go to church because I felt guilty. If I go to church, I'll be a hypocrite and that will compound my punishment. The darkness was overwhelming. The only relief I got was going to bed at night and I'd have dreams all night and wake up and go through the whole thing again and again. Completely crippled. Condemnation, shame, fear, lies, you name it, it was all there. Red in tooth and claw. You know, the devil came to me and he quoted scriptures. I would read the Bible and feel utterly condemned. I'd read scriptures about false believers and about hypocrites and the devil would say, that's you. That's you. You're one of them. Your place is the lake of fire. And I couldn't do anything about it. I tried to fight against it with scripture. It was so difficult. You know, I just... Those days, it's amazing. You know, I look how the Lord has brought me since then. I've had many battles since then, but nothing like that. That was the evil day for me. I came out of that and I started to emerge into this glorious sunlight of the doctrines of grace, we call them. Salvation is a free gift. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And um, it was such a blessed relief. It was like coming out of the shadows into the sunshine. But I had to go through that battle first. But that for me was the evil day. People, Anya knew me when I was first like that. I was like a different person. But why? I was, I was a sincere Christian. I loved the Lord. But why was this evil coming at me? Well, the Lord had a, had a purpose in it. And we know, don't we, that when... Look at Job. Whenever these things happen, the Lord always has a purpose. When those men nailed Jesus to that cross, it seemed that, that evil had won the day. But actually, evil's greatest triumph, as it seemed to them, was actually evil's greatest defeat. The Lord arranged it. He arranged it. it went, even when Judas had a, a devil inside of him and betrayed Jesus and all those people, that satanic hatred against the Lord of life. And yet, God's plans and purposes were absolutely fulfilled. Those people worked right into God's hands, played into his hands, and God worked out his purposes of salvation through them. I think we have to, to remember, when the evil day comes, that God is doing this, he's working out his purposes. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. But you may have had your own evil day, day of evil. You may have had nothing like that at all. I'm not suggesting that all Christians have to have something like that. But I'm sure a time will come where you face trial in a sustained way. Temptation, lies, heartbreak, tragedy, problems, opposition, whatever it might be for you. We're not promised an easy life, are we, as Christians? How do we withstand this? The good news is we can withstand this. We can stand strong. We don't have to be defeated by this. Turn to verse 10. First verse, what what does Paul say? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength, his mighty power. Actually, that word means be strengthened in the Lord. Find your strength in him. We first read about this in Ephesians 1, verse 19. Let me just remind you of it. It's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength 
which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That same extraordinary power that raised Christ from the dead is working in believers. And I pray that we would know this and have confidence in this. It wouldn't just be something we talk about, we would experience this as a reality. We're called to be strong in him. Now, I want to put it to you tonight that this idea of being strong in God is not something which is passive. It's not something we just sit back and say, okay, when the day of evil comes, when the day of sustained attack comes, I'm going to call upon the Lord and that's all I need to do. God has given us Christians a way of building up ourselves, building ourselves up so that when this day comes, we'll be strong in God's strength, not in our strength, to face it. Strengthening ourselves in the Lord is an active process. Please don't think that somehow all you have to do is sit back and relax and be casual and somehow when that day comes, you can call on the Lord to help you. Of course, you should call on the Lord anyway, but God has given us means by which we can be strong in him. God is the one who strengthens us, but we must take hold of it. I thought of an illustration. I don't know if it's a very good one. You can tell me if it is or not. So imagine the Isle of Wight fills a home island. Imagine the Isle of Wight was threatened by France. And France said, we think the Isle of Wight belongs to us. And at some point, we're going to attack the Isle of Wight and claim it back for France. The people in the Isle of Wight, pretty weak. Haven't got an army, haven't got a navy, haven't got an air force. What are they going to do? Got a few fishing boats, hovercraft, a few yachts. Kind of, it's like you know, a little flotilla of boats, but it's not going to take on the might of the French Navy. So they go to the Royal Navy just over in Portsmouth, and they say, can you help us out? The Royal Navy said, okay, we'll send you ships, we'll send you men, we'll send weapons and equipment, and we'll, we'll arm you and help you to develop your navy so you can fight against the French and defeat the French and defend your island. There's another way they could do it. They could just sit still, do nothing at all, and then when the day of, of they see the French ships approaching over the channel, they, they call the navy and say, please come and help us out. I think the Christian warfare is more like the former rather than the latter. We're not called just to sit back and say, well, it's nothing we can do, so on the day of trouble, we'll just call on, on God. We're called to be active to build ourselves up, to use the resources God has given us so that we're ready ourselves. Once again, it's not that we're strong. We've got nothing. We're not, the Isle of Wight Navy wouldn't be strong in itself, but it would be strong with the might of the Royal Navy backing it together. And I think that what this, this whole thing about the armour of God, when I was younger, I had a complete misunderstanding of this. It's not something that you just put on when you need it. I mean, in, in a sense it is, but it's more than that. It's something that you put on before the event actually happens. Preparation is needed. The armour of God, and you need to be aware, obviously, that the armour is not talking about physical armour, it's a spiritual armour, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a picture of certain qualities and truths that a Christian has that protect them. These are things that a Christian should wear all the time, isn't it? Aren't they? It's not something that you see, when, when you see the day of evil come, when trouble hits you, start putting it on. Not primarily, anyway. Something you put on today, you wear every single day of your life. This is talking about the normal Christian life, brothers and sisters. This is talking about 
godliness, Christ-likeness. He's talking about spiritual life and alertness. A desire to take the means that God has given us to build us up, to strengthen us, to prepare us for that evil day. So when it comes, we will not be completely overwhelmed by it. So let's not think this is some, some kind of special thing we do in times of trouble. Yes, of course, when trouble comes, we do dig deep, don't we, on these resources that God has given us. and We call out for special strength. But we should always be a strong people, simultaneously weak and strong. The Christian is the weakest person in the world, and yet the strongest person in the world at the same time. In myself, I'm absolutely weak. I couldn't, couldn't face anything at all. I couldn't face any trial. I couldn't go for any temptation. But in Christ, mightily strong. Mightily strong. We're not promised it won't be a struggle, but we are promised in verse 13 that we'll be able to stand, and after we've done everything, to withstand. So this armour is something we need to take seriously today. What is this armour? Let's have a look. I'm aware that time's going again, but please bear with me. This is important. Verse 13, put on the full armour of God. The word armour isn't actually used in the Greek. The word panoplion is used, which is where we get the English word panoply from. A whole range of different things. That's what a panoply means. An array of different things. We've got a picture here of a fully kitted out soldier who's got all the kit and equipment he needs to fight in a battle. I can't, we can't really be certain why Paul chose these particular illustrations um, to illustrate different attributes of the Christian life or things that we believe. What do I mean by this? Well, if you read books on this, there'll be a thousand different interpretations of what the shield of faith means. What does it look like? Or the helmet of salvation, or the breastplate of righteousness. Even, even good and godly Christians cannot fully agree what this means. Why Paul has chosen particularly a breastplate to illustrate righteousness, or a helmet to illustrate salvation. Why not the, the, the breastplate of salvation, or the shield of salvation, or the shield of righteousness? I, I don't think we can be too dogmatic about it. We shouldn't get hung up and trying to. I think that's a mistake Christians make. Sometimes we do this with parables as well. We try to, to every single little detail. We drive it too far and try and understand too much what's going on here. Paul is trying to make a simple point. simple point is all these things, all these qualities, all these truths are all part of a Christian's protection. A protective armour which shields a Christian against spiritual attack. So let's not get too bogged down in the detail of trying to work out exactly what does he mean by the shield of faith or the sword of the spirit. I think Paul did choose these things for a reason, but I think it's a general reason. I think more importantly, um, we should learn that all these things are part of the full kit, the full panoply of a Christian that we should have. And these things are interchangeable and interconnected. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about the breastplate of faith. So that, that he uses these terms interchangeably. So it's not like we have this set in stone. You must say this, must say this, must say this. And these things are all connected Truth, salvation, righteousness, these things, you cannot separate them, can you? They're all part of the same package. When we come to examine these, these parts of the armour, they come. the interpretations usually come in two different parts. The first part refers to the objective truth of this. So, for example, what God has done for us in Christ, what Christ has won for us, what he has given us, that's the objective truth which we hold on to as Christians, which which protects us in the battle, which we know to be true. 
And usually there's a second interpretation, something slightly more subjective, which is about the Christian's experience, how they experience this, how they work this out in their lives. In Isaiah 11, verse 5, let me quickly turn to it. If I can find it. In 11 verse 5, we've got this wonderful prophecy which concerns the Messiah, God's Messiah. It says this in verse 5, Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So in Ephesians, Paul talks about the belt of truth. He doesn't actually use the word belt at all. He says having your loins girded with truth. But we assume that's some kind of belt. But in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, it talks about righteousness, this idea that God wears a belt. Or the Messiah wears a belt. Here it's to do with righteousness. I think Paul must have been reading or having in mind Isaiah when he wrote Ephesians 6. Because there's lots of references here to the kind of armour of God in the Old Testament. Let's think about the belt of truth in Ephesians. What is the belt of truth? Well, as I said, there's, there's a thousand different interpretations of what this could be. And I offer you one or two tonight. I don't think we can be too sure. Having your loins girded with truth. How important is truth in the life of the church? How crucial is it to Christians? Girded, having this belt on, means you know, you'd strap your belt on as a soldier if you were ready to attack or ready to, to face an attack. You'd have that, that belt on all the time so that you would be ready when the attack came. Having the, the belt on is a picture of somebody who's alert and vigilant and waiting for a t- an attack that could come any time. Now, the best interpretation I've heard about this belt is that soldiers wear a kind of tunic in Roman times, and this tunic would flap around everywhere. And that was okay when you were just going about everyday life, but in a battle, you don't really want big folds of cloth flapping around you, tripping you up, stumbling, making you stumble. Truth, what you do, you'd put on a belt around you which would keep all that, that tunic in place so that you could fight the battle and not be hindered. As I said, how important is truth in the Christian life? And truth is constantly under attack. Constantly under attack from every angle. Christians, people, whatever, whatever this means, we know we need to put on this belt. We need to have truth, hold on to it. The convictions about our Lord Jesus. Not to be swayed by all the lies. Without these convictions, we easily stumble and fall and lose our way. We cannot withstand the enemy's attacks. That's the the objective thing, the truth about Christ. There could be a more subjective meaning. Calvin believed this as well, that this could also talk about truthfulness, that a Christian who lives in truthfulness has a truthful and sincere heart, is not a hypocrite. That person will not stumble. Those qualities protect a Christian. What about the breastplate of righteousness? Moving on. We meet this in Isaiah 59, verse 17. Another reference from Isaiah. talking about the Lord. It says here, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. So we, two of the, the parts of the armour of God we read about in this bit of Isaiah. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. It's talking about God putting on the armour. Which I think is interesting. Essentially Paul doesn't mention the garments of vengeance does he in the New Testament. That's God's prerogative, vengeance. But ours as Christians 
are these things, righteousness and the helmet of salvation. It's quite a poetical way of talking about God. It's describing the kind of attributes God has in quite a poetical way. But for us, we have a part of the Christian armour, righteousness. And this, of course, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's the objective truth we know about him. We look at ourselves, we see the sin in us, the vileness, the thoughts that nobody else knows about, the things that we've done, the things that we do in secret. We look at ourselves, we think, how could we possibly be a Christian? We remember, it's by grace we've been saved, through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The gift of God. We look at ourselves, we despair. The devil comes with his accusations, we say, no, I know my saviour, my righteous Lord has lived a righteous life for me. Because of his righteous life and righteous death, he is an atoning sacrifice for me. And there is no condemnation for me. We hold on to that to protect us. Secondary meaning, the kind of Christian quality that's associated with this is a righteous life. If you live a righteous life, you obey the word of God and you you seek to meet with his people, walk with him and obey his word and pray. If you do that, that will help you, protect you. That's evidence of, of assurance that there's some work of God going on inside of you. A righteous life protects us from the pitfalls and traps of sin. Moving swiftly on because we haven't got much time. What about the next one? Feet shod with readiness of the gospel of peace. Um, what verse is it? 15, thank you. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It could be that Paul was thinking of Isaiah 52 verse 7 when it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. The gospel, of course, is good news. I, I just think it's, you know, it's about a soldier who needs to have proper footwear. A soldier who's not shod properly, he doesn't have proper shoes, is pretty immobile and vulnerable. You need to be able to move on the battlefield. Also, I think there's a sense that this, this idea of preparedness, readiness, is not so much readiness to go and preach the gospel. Of course, that is true for Christians. It's a preparedness um, that's, that's caused by the gospel of good news. If we understand the gospel... It gives us a certain freedom. When I was in Ukraine that first year, I was absolutely crippled, as I said, by fear and doubt because I didn't understand the gospel properly, even though I was a Christian. I was immobilized. I couldn't do anything you know, within reason because I didn't understand the peace that came from the gospel. When I had that peace, it mobilized me. It freed me. It made me active in service of the Lord. This could also be talking about a prepared foundation. So it's not talking about um, being ready to move around. It's about talking about standing in one place. A Roman soldier had shoes that had deep spikes going into the ground to hold him firm in the face of battle. And we Christians, we plant our feet, don't we, on the gospel. So we're not easily moved. We need to be people that are not easily moved around or swayed. We stand strong. We stand firm with this gospel, preaching the gospel, holding firm to the gospel, rejoicing in the gospel. What about the shield of faith? This is talking about the big Roman shield that covered the whole body. Jesus had his evil day in the wilderness. And Jesus responded, didn't he? He had the shield of faith. And Jesus also had the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. 
Faith is such an important thing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We need to hold on, don't we? We can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil. When he fires those lies and accusations and temptations at you, the shield of faith. Faith is what stops those things from hitting home and and destroying us. Trusting in the promises of God, trusting in his goodness, holding on in faith that the Lord will deliver us, the Lord will protect us. We all know what those fiery darts are, don't we? Attacks. Very intense. Shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. Isn't the mind a battlefield? Many of you know this only too well, the mind. I've, I've known this all my life. Somebody who's prone to be melancholy and overthinking things. I've, I've experienced some really intense battles in my mind. Once again, I don't really fully understand how much authority Satan has to control our minds or influence our minds. I don't understand how this all works, but I do think he can. Doubts, fears, confusion. You know, friends, lies can be deeply ingrained. Some of you are still struggling with Satan's lies from years and years ago. Things that he's told you about yourself, about God. Helmet of salvation, which we read about in Isaiah, protects us, protects our mind. Remembering the salvation, remembering what we've been saved from and what the Lord promises for those who believe in him. There's an idea here that there's an assurance that God has won the battle and we will receive the prize. Sword of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, speech is often described as a sword. The word of God. When Jesus was attacked in the desert, in the the wilderness, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He fought back against the devil's lies with scripture. Jesus knew the Bible like the back of his hand and he used it to full effect. Even when the devil tried, tried to twist it and accuse Jesus and tempt him. We need to be convinced, don't we? The Bible is the word of God and it's powerful. The Bible is constantly being attacked. If you, you doubt that this book really is the word of God, you won't wield it in battle. You won't be able to. Everything is fair game these days. People are always trying to attack the Bible. People have always done that. We need to stand strong in it, don't we? This is the word of God. This is the means that God has given us to fight back. People say this is the only offensive weapon. When I say offensive, I mean the weapon used to attack in this whole panoply of armour. I think in this, in this context, it's defensive. It's using, using, you're using it to, to ward off and fend off the devil when he comes at you with the word of God, with the truth that you know in Scripture. And finally, we come to prayer. Verse 18. It says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. I don't think prayer is included as part of this panoply of armour. But prayer is what makes all the rest of the armour effective. I want you to notice here how often the word all is used. So it says here, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. I think Paul's trying to make a point here that prayer is a very fundamental part of the believer. There's no opportunity, no occasion where you should not pray. Pray for all the saints, all the time, Everywhere, with all kinds of prayers. It's comprehensive. He's laying it on so you understand the importance of this. Prayer, a vibrant prayer life, is the hallmark of an alert and vigilant Christian. Lack of prayer, weakness in prayer, indifference towards prayer, 
is a sign of a Christian or a church which is quite weak, lacking strength and vulnerable to attack. I think if a church is prayerful, if a church is really putting this into practice, the church will be far better placed to withstand the attacks of the enemy. You know what? I really wish, I pray that my prayer life would improve. My heart is cold. Very often I find it difficult. Why don't we pray? There's so much to pray about. There's so many people to pray for. Would, would it that the Lord would stir us up to pray as a people? What things would we, I'm not suggesting that what we, what we pray for makes everything change. But at the same time, prayer does change things. The Lord graciously answers prayer. If we had more of a prayer life, what the Lord would do for us, I don't know. But we do need to pray for each other, don't we? If we're praying for each other, we need to be part of a Christian community. It's very difficult to pray for Christians that you never see. You don't really know what's going on in their lives. That's why it's so important to meet together. Meet together, spend time together and pray for each other. Pray for strength in the battle. There'll be people people here, definitely, who are going through this battle at the moment. Or some kind of battle. Some kind of struggle. Pray for those people. Pray together. Encourage each other to put on this armour. To live the normal Christian life. To grow in these things. We might be prepared. It says we should pray in the spirit. I'm not going to go into this too much, but I, I don't think this is talking about some kind of ecstatic utterings. Some kind of, you know, going out of body experience. But it's just pray in the spirit. I think it's far more, more natural than that and normal. Because if you look here, we're, we're to pray for all the saints with requests. And you can't do that if your mind is switched off. It's talking about prayers that are based on knowledge, on situations, things that we know about and pray about. But praying in the spirit is the opposite of these kind of dry, lifeless, ritualistic prayers. You know, I've been, I've been to funerals before where they, they say the Lord's Prayer. They, they repeat it like a mantra as though the prayer itself warded off evil spirits or something like that. Our Father in heaven. You know, it's prayer, that's the opposite of what we have here. We have this heartfelt, spirit-driven prayer where the Lord stirs up his people to pray according to the word, the revealed will of God, to pray with passion, to pray with fervor. I'm not talking about an emotional hype. I'm talking about we don't want our prayers to be lifeless, do we? We want to be personally engaged with the things we're praying for in the spirit, as he moves us, as he gives us insight into situations. Not just platitudes. That's what I think in the spirit means, and we could talk a lot about that. We need the Holy Spirit to help us with our weak praying to stir us up. When we see evidence of the devil's schemes, we should pray. When we see temptations to sin, we should pray. Even when those things are not happening, we should still pray that when they do come, we'll be strong. My final challenge before we finish to all of us, it's very easy, isn't it, in the West? I know some of you go through big trials at work and have difficult jobs, family situations, opposition from family members. It's very easy for us, isn't it, to think we're in peacetime and to be casual and indifferent and to have one foot in the church, one foot in the world, and to mess around with sin, sail close to the wind, and neglect the means of grace that God has given us. Neglect church, neglect prayer, neglect Bible reading, neglect this kind of purposeful putting on of this armour, this growing as a Christian, this normal, vigilant, alert Christian life. There have been times in my Christian life when I've been so distracted, prayerless, consumed with worldly things, not in the word, just pick up the Bible, read it, can't be bothered, put it back on the shelf. Despondent and just distant from God and feeling weak and prayerless and not really wanting to spend time with other Christians. 
if you're like that, you're in a, in a very vulnerable position. And I, I really do fear for Christians who appear to be dabbling with the world and professing Christians who just seem to be weak and not really that bothered about growing as a Christian and being strong, being strong in the Lord. If that's, if that's you or that's me, we need to be very careful that the day of trouble doesn't come consume us, take us unawares. But if we're doing these things that God has called us to do, we have nothing to fear. The battle may be intense. And that battle may be brutal. But we don't have to fear that day. Let's encourage each other and exhort each other as Christians to, to be strong in the Lord, to put on this armour, to pray. If we do that, that's what the church is all about. We don't do this in isolation, do we? You know, a soldier doesn't fight by himself. He's part of an army. Sorry. You may have fallen in the battle. Some of you may well have fallen in big ways. The devil has overcome you to a certain extent. You've tripped up. You haven't put on this armor. You haven't fought against him. You haven't withstood him. You've fallen into disgrace or sin or disappointment or whatever it might be. A Christian gets up again and keeps on fighting. A true Christian doesn't give up when he's knocked down. Christian gets up and dusts himself down and fights again another day. And the precious truth that I want to say to you as well is that the true Christian can never lose that, can never be harmed fully by the devil. He can attack us, he can bruise us, he can cause us to fall, but we will get up again and persevere. God's grace protects the true believer and enables him to get up again, fight the battle another day. May it be that we don't fall into these sins, we don't get attacked in this way and give in to temptation and the sins and the schemes of the devil but if we are if we are overcome I've known good men who've given up their marriages for some stupid affair I've known people that have fallen into all kinds of sin and temptation if that's if people have done stuff I'm not saying you've done that but whatever it might be that we've, we've done we've given up we've compromised get up and fight again ask God for grace learn from the experience and tell other people that they might not make the same mistake For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's my conviction. So let's pray that God will help us. But before that, let's sing our final hymn.